reading. So let us begin with Psalm 34 of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Oh Lord God, we are those, I trust, who have experienced your blessing of redemption, who have escaped condemnation. So help us to exult in who you are for us. Help us to believe these words, to learn the fear of you, to practice it, to experience the confidence and the joy that David here expresses. And Lord, if any here do not know you, let, let them hear these words of wisdom. Let them begin in the fear of the Lord finding their refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week, I'd guess for at least two-thirds of our time, we spent in 1 Samuel 17 to 21. Um, there are only 14 psalms of the 140 psalms in the Psalter that have explicit references to historical events in their titles, and this is one of them. This is, in fact, one of two psalms about the same event. One of the reasons we spent so much time in 1 Samuel 21 last week is because um, in the middle of June, our own Mitchell McClure will be preaching Psalm 56, and Psalm 56 is a title referencing the exact same event. I won't go over all of it right now because we spent so much time last week, but I will briefly rehearse what took place in David's life. David had become the Lord's anointed king. Saul had, through a two-step process, first lost the dynasty through his unauthorized sacrifice and then lost the kingdom itself through his failure to put to death the, uh, the Amalekites. He spared King Agag. He made, a, made some sort of image or, or statue of himself. He spared the best of the sheep. He feared the people more than he feared God. And so the Lord God rejected him as king, sought out a man after his own heart, and Samuel anoints David, and David shows up when the Israelite army is faced against the Philistine army. He sees Goliath, hears his taunts, is, is enraged that this uncircumcised Philistine would speak so boldly to the people of God, and he goes out and he slays him. And a song is written in response to this, that Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, and this song Reaps a lot of sorrow for David as first Saul begins to eye him, become jealous of him. I think in part Saul understood, perceived that God's spirit had departed from him and had come upon David. 
also his growing fame. And, and Saul begins a campaign of trying to eliminate David. First, subtly, he puts him in dangerous way again and again, going out in raiding parties against the Philistines. But David keeps being victorious. So not only does David not die, his reputation is growing. His esteem in the eyes of the people is growing. That's not good from Saul's perspective. And then um, David is comforting Saul with music when Saul picks up a spear and throws it at him. And this is really the beginning of Saul's overt pursuit of David. The subtlety is gone. David goes to the home of his wife, Saul's daughter. She warns him. Saul has men who are coming. If you do not leave tonight, you'll be a dead man. David has to climb out the window. And he goes and he meets with Jonathan, Saul's son. And what have I done to your father, he says to Jonathan. And Jonathan says, let me go consult my father and and see where things stand. And Saul is so violently opposed against David that he actually tries to kill his own son. He throws a spear at Jonathan, evidencing the insanity of being controlled by sin. Presumably, Saul's stated reason for being opposed to David is to secure a kingdom for his son, and yet when he sees his son has sided with David, he tries to kill him. Jonathan returns to David and says, you need to get out of here. My father is is bent on your destruction, your death. And David flees. First, he flees to Ahimelech, the high priest, Nob, where the priests are, where the ark is, and David is, is without weapon, without provisions. He has no food. He's virtually alone. And so desperate is the situation that he um, is given the, the showbread by Ahimelech. And he's given Goliath's sword. And then he notices the chief of Saul's herdsmen, Doeg the Edomite, and so he knows he's not safe there. And he flees, and he flees to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown. David shows up at Gath with Goliath's sword in tow, nobody with him. He's desperate. This is not a cunning plan. This is an act of desperation. Um, He recognizes that Saul's agents are everywhere. He's not even safe from their presence with the priests at Nob. So the one place he figures Saul won't be able to follow him to is a Philistine city. And so he travels to Gath, and he's recognized, and they know that song. And so David, in an act of utter desperation, feigns madness. Um, he, he drools on his beard. He makes marks on the gates of the city. This is a last-ditch effort. Amazingly, it works. Amazingly, Akish, he's named Abimelech here, which is probably simply a title for a Philistine lord, Abimelech Ab. Like Abraham, father, Melech, ruler, king, my father, the king, is a title that shows up a number of times through Genesis. This is the name given to the Philistine who tries to marry Abraham's wife, Sarah. So likely it's just a Philistine title. So Akish um, has this dynastic title, kind of like Caesar. And, and Akish sends David away. <laughs> and David writes this psalm in response to that. And so it's it's critical that we understand David is writing this psalm about the deliverance he receives from the Lord when he is absolutely at the end of himself, terrified. Um, If if you read the events of 1 Samuel 21 as as clever, conniving, tricky David, you're going to get a very different reading out of this psalm. And and I think my understanding of the text is confirmed with this. How does David refer to himself? This poor man, he says. I sought the Lord, verse 4, and he delivered me. He answered me and delivered me. This poor man, verse 6, cried out, and the Lord heard him. And so the psalm began with David's terror. We looked at that, just the psalm title itself. And then we looked at David's testimony. And and the flow of the psalm is pretty straightforward. David is going to speak of the events in his own life and instruct others. And we talked about how there's a certain humility involved both in giving and receiving this. On David's end, he has to humble himself to acknowledge his need. I mean, David is the great king of Israel. And here he is reminding Israel of that time when he was so desperate, so terrified, he pretended he was mad, let spittle run down his beard. There's a certain amount of humility it takes to acknowledge our desperate need. And yet God delivered David, not just for David's sake, but for his people's sake, for our sake. We are greatly blessed that David humbled himself enough to recount God's deliverance, even in this desperate situation. And God would have us humble ourselves and talk about our low periods where God has been faithful, where God has delivered. And don't let a false modesty close your mouth. 
from God's deliverance. We also notice it takes a certain amount of humility to share in this joy. David says in verse 2, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Of course, humility is a lack of self-focus. And sometimes when we hear about God's blessing in others, we might be tempted to think, well, why not me? That's not a humble attitude. David recognizes the humble will hear this and rejoice. So David's movement in the psalm is, let me tell you about what God did for me, how faithful he was for me in my desperate circumstances. You should do the same. And so we're going to pick it up now in verse 8 with David's teaching. David's teaching. And there's an element of wisdom literature to this psalm. It'll become even more clear. But, oh, taste and see, he writes, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many good days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking to see. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So as you look at verses 8 through 14, David's instruction is teaching. We're going to look at this along three points. Three, so you can group this into three imperatives, three exhortations. The first is to taste. Taste. Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, this is a major theme of the psalm. You can identify that because that same phrase, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, appears in verse 22. Except here, it's none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So taking refuge in God, finding your protection, looking to him for protection in time of fear, is a major theme here. And also that blessed is the man. Again, this, how does the Psalms open? How does the book of Psalms open? Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man. And so often in the Proverbs, blessed is. It's interesting, in Psalm 1, the contrast is between those who love wickedness and evil, who walk in the path with sinners, and those who delight in God's law. Here, the contrast is with those who do evil and those who fear the Lord and take refuge in him which indicates some connectedness between those themes. So taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now David uses two metaphorical pictures. Tasting, it's one sense, and sight, another sense, to talk about proving or experiencing God's goodness. And the encouragement is to go from mere intellectual understanding to action. I can, you can read a book about how a various um, cake is made, You can read reviews about how tasty it is. You can read about its flavor and its aroma and its zest. I think that's a word only advertising people use. I've never eaten something that said that's zesty, but it's you could read all about it, but your knowledge of that will be dwarfed by the one who's actually tasted it. And so David is recounting God's salvation. He's recounting truth, but his invitation to you and to me is to act on it and see. We have the phrase, the proof is in the pudding, right? And that's really a shortening of the proof is in the eating of the pudding. And what he's saying is these are not just truths that are beautiful that we put on cards and quilts and we put on our walls. These are truths to be believed and acted upon. And he's encouraging us and promising us that when we do, we will see. When you put God to the test in that sense, in the good sense, when you try him and trust him, he proves himself faithful. It's own expression, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left untried. And David encourages us to taste and see the Lord is good. Now, what does he mean by that? I think the parallelism here helps explain. Taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I, I think the implication is this. Take refuge in, taking refuge in him is a way of experiencing. When you're in trouble, where will you turn? I, I, let's put it that way. When you're in fear, when you're in terror, when you're in dread, when you feel you have no way of escape, where do you turn? Well, the world offers us many places to turn. You could turn to your wealth, to your securities, named so for that reason. You could turn to your power, your clout, if you've amassed any. You could turn to all number of places. And David's saying, no, turn to the Lord. Find your refuge in him. Look to him for deliverance. Run to him for protection. 
And if you will do that, God will prove himself faithful. These are not empty promises, in other words. This expression is used by Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Similar context, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy, and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. So David wants us to move beyond mere concepts to action, to act upon these truths, to actually, in time and space, take action and trust God, entrust ourselves to him, find our refuge in him, and see and experience for ourselves his protection, his protection. Second, tremble. So taste, then second, tremble. Um, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack tremble. Now, when the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord, um, it's not the fear that is like a terror. This is in contrast to David's experience. David was in a certain type of fear before Abimelech. Uh, In fact, the text of 1 Samuel says, when they quote the song, when they say, is this not David? Do they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and he was much afraid. But when the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord, it refers rather to the taking God seriousliness, if that's a phrase you can use, to not treat him lightly, to take him seriously, to to have a reverent fear for him such that you fear not other things. In in one respect, if you're a parent, you've ever walked, and if you're a parent, you have, you've walked out of the room with the sleeping child in the crib very, very tenderly. It's because you fear waking them up. Not a fear that you're terrified. It's got your attention. You're treating it as important. You're treating it as weighty, not a light, frivolous matter. Fearing God is similar. And what David is saying is if you'll fear God, you don't need to fear anything else. If you'll fear God, you don't need to be afraid of anything else. That's really, if I could summarize this psalm in, in one sentence, that'd be it. Fear God and fear nothing else. And it gives us a reason why we ought to fear the Lord. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Now think back to the the situation in in 1 Samuel 21. What were the two things when David goes to Ahimelech he lacked? Food and protection. He needs food and he needs a sword. These are the two themes this psalm picks up on. The Lord will protect, the Lord will provide. That's, That's the promise here. You find refuge. You look for refuge when you need protection when you're fleeing from someone or some threat. And here the promise is for provision. So taste and experience his protection, tremble and be confident in his provision. And and David uses strong language. They have no lack. To what degree do those who fear the Lord have no, no lack? Well, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, Peter Craigie in his commentary writes this of this metaphor. Of all the beasts in Israel's knowledge, the lion is the most powerful and therefore the least likely to lack prey and go hungry. And among the lions, though old lions may conceptually lack prey, surely young lions are active and successful hunters. The young lions thus symbolize the essence of self-sufficiency and the provision of physical needs. So what he's saying is... It is possible for even the strongest, most self-reliant, most equipped, most powerful hunters to lack provision. It is possible. In an extreme drought, famine in the land, you could get to a point where even the young lions suffer hunger. But those who lack the Lord lack no good thing. That's a promise. This is in the context of taste and see. Now, this isn't the prosperity gospel that promises that you'll be driving around in a Rolls Royce, flying in a gold-plated jet, But you can be rest assured that if you fear God, if you seek him, you will have what you need. And there will be no good thing withheld from you. You will have what you need. That is the promise. So you you taste and see and experience his protection. You you tremble. You cultivate the fear of the Lord, which is where he moves to next. And you become confident in his provision. And then finally turn and learn the fear of the Lord. 
And this last exhortation is, if the fear of the Lord comes with such a wonderful promise of lacking no good thing, how does one cultivate it? And I love this psalm. So often the Bible commends the fear of the Lord. The Proverbs tell us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But if you don't fear the Lord, how do you? Well, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you. Fear the Lord. Teach you the fear of the Lord. So here is our explanation of the fear of the Lord. David now very, very much shifting into sort of the wisdom literature motif. Um, the Proverbs continually, Proverbs 4.1, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. This is similar even to the psalm we looked at a few weeks ago, 32, where David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Psalm 32.8. And here the instruction is on the fear of the Lord. And it's, and it's and put off and a put on. Don't do this, do this. And again, he puts the carrot well out in front. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And again, the logic is if you'll fear the Lord, if you'll learn this, you don't need to be afraid of evil days. You don't need to be afraid of what's to come. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Now, a couple comments here. This is not instructing us how to become saints, how to become Christians, how to become God's people. You look back, he's already addressed it. Verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Rather, this is an encouragement for those who are God's people. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many Days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And so the practical outworking, you want, to, you want to grow in the fear of God, or if you are sitting here today saying, you know, there was a time when I feared the Lord, but I, I know I should. I know I should care. I know, I know I should take him as weighty and heavy and not light and trivial, but I don't. David's encouragement is to begin actively pursuing obedience. Turn from lies and speaking lies and from doing evil and to doing what is good and seeking and pursuing peace. Keep, keep your thumb here. Turn to 1 Peter 3 where this passage gets quoted. In 1 Peter chapter 3. This psalm is quoted to God's people, encouraging them to experience the blessing from the Lord. Not salvation. You don't do these things to get saved, but as God's children, as his sons and daughters, if you will walk in the light, you'll have fellowship with him. We'll have fellowship with each other. You will be blessed. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Bless so that you'll be blessed. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's pretty straightforward. You want to experience God's blessing as his child. This isn't about becoming a child. As his child. If you are a Christian today. If you are God's son or daughter today. If you will act on the fear of the Lord. If you will taste and see. And the way you act on the fear of the Lord is you try to please him. You try to do what pleases him. You will be blessed. Now that distinction's critical. Because this isn't how you become a child. You become his child by taking refuge in him. That's, that's the language of this psalm as we'll get to see. Or to put it in New Testament language, you become his child by trusting and finding refuge in, turning to Jesus, his son, for salvation. That's how you become his saint and his child. But as his child, how do you experience his blessing? You fear him. What does it mean to fear him? You're actively trying to turn from evil and turn to good. That, that's what it means. And that's the wisdom here of David as he thinks back to this terrifying time in his life and how God delivered him from it. He says, be like me. 
trust in God, experience his salvation, his deliverance as well. So that's David's teaching. Now, in verses 15 to 22, we're going to look at David's trust, his confidence. There are are truths, further truths, that he's taking confidence in to undergird these exhortations. The only exhortations in the Psalms here are right here, where David, as it were, is breaking the, the fourth wall and he's speaking to the reader. Now he's going to recount truths about who God is to encourage us to obey these exhortations, to taste, to tremble, and to turn, to put into practice our faith, to fear God, to turn from evil to good. David's trust now in three points. First, what is David trusting in? David is trusting that the Lord and the Lord's immediate and intimate response. Now, when I write immediate, we use the word immediately to mean quickly. But really what immediately means is without mediation, immediate as opposed to immediate. Um, we, we can sometimes view God as far away. The God of the deists, the clockmaker God, is not an immediate God. He's mediated. This perception, this false perception of God is mediated by laws of physics and the big clock that he made. What David's going to focus on is God's immediacy. We're going to see God's eye. We're to see God's ear. We're to see his face. These are all metaphors, but they're metaphors that speak of him being immediate, him being present, him being aware, him being near. And so one of the truths that David wants us to grasp, that he wants to grasp, that he's celebrating, that will help us obey these imperatives, is realizing that God is not far away. He is near and present, and he is very intimate and personal in his response. So let's just read these verses. I want you to focus on God's immediacy his presentness, and the intimacy of his response, both to the wicked and to the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off their memory from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Okay? The Lord's immediate and intimate response. First, he sees and hears the righteous. He sees and hears the righteous. Verses 15 and 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ears toward their cry. And we can be tempted to think when we're suffering that God is not hearing, he's far away. The the language here is God is intimately aware of your suffering. Again, another indication that this is not a psalm, but the prosperity gospel is why on earth would the righteous need him to see and hear their cries if they're not in trouble? David is not promising a trouble-free life. He's promising a life, in fact, filled with trouble. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but rather a life filled with trouble accompanied by a faithful and saving God. That's the reality David's speaking of. Even the psalm title reminding us, you can get in some pretty dire straits. Your confidence is that God will see you through them. He sees and hears the righteous. This is similar to the language of of Exodus 2. You don't need to turn there, but the entire story of the Exodus kicks off with this amazing passage at the end of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And so that that statement is meant to explain to us why God is about to act through Moses in delivering his people, because he hears, because he remembers, because he saw, because he knows. And in one sense... And this is where you've got to take your theology and make it practical. Of course, God's omniscient. It means he knows all things. Well, then understand that means God knows what's going on in your life, in your situation. He sees and he hears. It's intimate. It's not like he got an re- email report. He's seeing it. There's, there's no mediation. It's not even angels are reporting to him. He himself is seeing. He himself is hearing. He is intimately, intimately aware of your Situation. By the way, we get the first mention of this word, the righteous, here. Um, and we'll deal with it more fully at the end of the psalm, but let me make it clear. The righteous are understood not as the sinless, but as the redeemed. 
Um, just to make that point clear, look at the parallelism of 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And then on the flip side of the parallel are those who will not be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It's not that the righteous don't deserve condemnation. They get redeemed, and thus they're not condemned. So the righteous in this psalm, righteous, you could mean in an absolute sense, sinless, or rather the right and the good, those who are trying to do what pleases the Lord. That's the contrast here. Righteous doesn't mean sinless. You and I can be righteous in this sense. We're the people that are trying to exercise the fear of the Lord. We're trying to do what is right. And in that limited, lowercase r sense, we're righteous. That's how it's being used here. The righteous need redemption in verse 22. They are not sinless. And he sees and hears them. In contrast, his face is against those who do evil. Now, that is a fearful statement. Understand that the immediacy of God, his nearness and his presence can either be a great comfort, as it is in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, or if you do not fear him, if you harden your heart to him, be afraid, because you cannot escape him. And if you are not one who fears him and finds your refuge in him, he is against you. And here we have the the stern face of a sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing, present God opposed to those who do evil. Um, Derek Kidner writes this, The plight of the wicked is put in an equally personal form in terms of the unwelcoming face of God. And then Kidner quotes Lewis saying, We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. How much is God against the wicked? How much is his face against them? To cut off the memory of them from the earth. Even the most great and powerful of the wicked will be forgotten. What is the the great hope coming to us in, in Revelation The former things will be remembered no more. And even today, people who in their day thought themselves mighty and powerful are forgotten. The Lord is immediate and intimately involved, both in seeing and hearing the righteous and in being opposed to and bringing to an end the wicked. These are more reasons why we ought to taste, tremble, and turn. The Lord is immediate an intimate response. His face is against those who do evil. And look at number three. This is just wonderful. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. There's a play on words that gets set up here in verse 18 that isn't completed till verse 20. Same word for brokenhearted is applied in verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So the righteous, God's servant, can go through tough times. They can be brokenhearted. They can be crushed. And God is near to them. And he saves them. And we sing on many Sundays, a broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. These are the sacrifices of God, Psalm 50 tells us. Psalm 51, I mean, tells us. In verse 17. Psalm 73 says, The nearness of God is my good. So, so David, David extols to us, recognizing our weakness. Being broken before the Lord is the best place you can be. We sing down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. You know, when we are in trials, we can put on a brave front and a stiff upper lip pretend we have things under control, we'd be far wiser to take God's counsel, take David's counsel, recognize our brokenness, recognize our weakness, and seek our refuge in God. He saves the crushed in spirit. He is near to the brokenhearted. Now, this this is a wonderful promise. Turn, keep your thumb here. Turn to Isaiah 61. How, How near is God to the brokenhearted, and how much of a savior is he for the crushed in spirit. 
Isaiah 61. A passage you may recognize. Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, they that, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. Now, if you've been coming here for week after week, why do you recognize this passage? Who cited this passage at the beginning of their ministry in Luke chapter 4? Jesus. When our Lord and Savior came, he cited this passage as his mission statement in Luke 4. How much is God near the brokenhearted and for the crushing spirit? Jesus is coming, and he identifies and he can summarize his entire life, death, resurrection, his ministry as a fulfillment of this. That's how much God is for and near and saves the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. These are wonderful, wonderful truths. We have a sympathetic God, a God who is near. If you're broken, if you're suffering, if your heart is crushed, your spirit, God is near and God saves. You are in the best possible place you can be. He is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So David's trust is first that the Lord is immediate and he's going to respond intimately. Second, that he has a complete and comprehensive deliverance. There's a full salvation that your lack of strength, your weakness, your brokenness actually puts on display his compassion and his salvation. Finally, third, um, we we see, um, actually second, B, the Lord's complete and comprehensive deliverance, verses 19 to 20. Lord's complete and comprehensive deliverance. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now here's, here's the picture David's painting. Again, it's not the prosperity gospel, and it's not the prosperity light gospel. The prosperity gospel, um, taught by reprehensible teachers, is that if you... Do the right thing, believe the right thing, name and claim the right thing, declare the right thing. You will be wealthy and rich with material blessings. And I think most of us know that's not right. But we can buy into the prosperity light gospel. And the prosperity light gospel goes something like this. If you are a good little boy or girl, if you do your devotions and you go to church and you help out in Awana and you pray at night, you're going to have a relatively smooth life. You won't get cancer. Your spouse or your child won't die. You won't lose your job. You'll have some little bumps, but by and large, life will be relatively smooth. Now, no one would say that, but if you're honest, when difficulties come, many are the afflictions of the righteous. When some of those afflictions come into our life, We can identify, you can identify that you've believed, drunk some of that Kool-Aid, if you begin to question God, but but God, I've been good. God, I've been faithful. Why, why, why'd you let this happen? David's right over, many are the afflictions of the righteous. The confidence we have is not that our God will protect us from difficulty, but he'll protect us through difficulty. The Lord delivers him out of them all. I want to pause at this moment, just focus on, that's David's emphasis here. Look at verse 6. Actually, go back to um, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man cried, the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his trouble. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, many 
of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You get the emphasis on totality, the Lord's complete and comprehensive deliverance. It's not that God will keep you out of trial, but that he will deliver you through trial. That he will be with you through trials. That is our hope. Our hope is not, if you have enough faith, if you're faithful enough, and if you obey enough, and if you read your Bible enough, that you will not have affliction. You will. You live long enough. Your hope is that the Lord will deliver you out of them all. Then in verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, some understand this to be a prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus. In fact, if you turn to John 19, or you can just let me quote it either way. In John 19, it would seem almost certain that this is a messianic prediction. John writes in 1936, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. It's possible. It's possible. If you read Psalm 34 is referencing that, then what would be seen here is this truism of those who trust in the Lord. Notice in verse 22, it's his servants, plural. Whatever's going on in Psalm 34, it's not exclusively messianic. There's actually a better fit to the citation in John. Let me read to you Exodus 12, 46, speaking of the Passover lamb, which of course has huge connections in John's gospel with the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. So I think a far better fit for the, uh, the John citation is rather John seeing that just as the Passover lamb's body was to be whole and intact when it was eaten and consumed in the... Uh, passing over of sin. So Jesus, the Passover, our Passover, the Lamb of God also is likely, likewise whole. Um, textually, it's a better fit for the citation. So then what is David getting at here? Back in Psalm 34, are we to understand then that if you are faithful, if you trust in God, that you can't have a broken leg? You can't have a broken wrist? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think this is meant to be hyperbolic, similar to what our Lord says in Luke 21. Listen, you remember this, Luke 21, 16, 18. Speaking of the persecution in latter times, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated for all by my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish because they're going to lift your, you know, you're going to lift your hair up when they cut off your head. No, no. The point is, No true and lasting harm can be done to you because there's a resurrection. And in the resurrection, ain't nobody limping. That's the point. There there is no harm that can come to you in this life that the Lord God will not ultimately repair. The Lord God will not ultimately remove. In the resurrection, the only one with wounds is the lamb. You, you will not have any broken arms or legs. Whatever physical ailments you may have in this life, they will not come with you into the next. All his bones, not one of them, is broken. This is a picture of that deliverance. And also hints further, this deliverance, is, David is in view, is ultimate and final. Ultimate and final. He's looking at God's ultimate deliverance. That's where this psalm is going to end as we move into our closing point. He delivers the righteous from all his afflictions and he preserves him ultimately. That's the blank there, ultimately. Final preservation. There is a resurrection. No matter what suffering, pain, harm you may be receiving in this life, there is a resurrection where you will be whole. There is a God who will restore and preserve you fully. This brings finally then to the Lord's full and final 
judgment. Again, in verses 15 to 22, David is looking at truths to help motivate the exhortations in 8 through 14, to taste and see, to tremble, and to learn the fear of the Lord by turning from evil to good. Now here's the final thing to keep in your mind. The Lord's full and final judgment. And in verse 21 and 22, we get, two, we get a contrast. The, aff- the affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned, on the one hand. On the other, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Notice the parallelism of the second line. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We've got two parallel and contrasted outcomes. So first, of the wicked. It's an interesting expression. Affliction will slay the wicked. And I think the picture here is rather their own wickedness, their own evil will ultimately undo them. I'm similar to what is said in Psalm 7 about the wicked. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. You see, the ultimate difference between these two people, you can break all of humanity down into the wicked and the righteous, or those who take refuge in him, Both of them have sin. One of them, their sin, their affliction will slay them, will overcome them and overtake them. The other is redeemed. It's not that one has sin and the other doesn't. Both have sin. One sin is dealt with, the other's is not. And therefore, one is condemned and the other is not. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It's not very popular these days to talk about judgment. The Bible is explicit both in the Old and the New Testament. There's a coming judgment. And ultimately, the issue to deal with, to prepare for, is how will you stand to that judgment? Will the judge of the universe vindicate you? Will he justify you? Will he say, innocent, not guilty? Or will he say, condemned, guilty? There are those who God will condemn. Righteously, it's fitting. I think we see part of that even in the previous sentence. It's their own affliction that slays the wicked. It's their own evil that overtakes and overpowers them. But God will condemn them. And if you are not trusting and hiding in him, he will condemn you too. Every one of us. Which is why I'm so glad there's a parallel statement here. Now of the righteous. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And again, the, the picture is not a contrast between those who do wicked things and deserve judgment and those who don't do wicked things and don't deserve judgment. There'd be no need of refuge. There'd be no need of redemption if the contrast were between the good and the bad. The contrast is between those who take refuge in God, those who fear him, and those who hate him and his people. That's the contrast. Those who hate the righteous, those who love evil and hate good, and those who take refuge in him. None of them will be condemned, it says. None of them will be condemned. I'd like to close. Turn to, turn to Romans chapter 8. I think the New Testament, this side of the cross, takes that same wonderful truth and clothes it with some of the further revelation about the Lord's son, Jesus, his Savior, whom he gave. And as we get ready to sing our final song, I just want to take a quick look at Romans 8. This is just a marvelous passage. Look how Romans 8, 1 begins. And if there's, if there's any issue to settle in life, it is this. Will you or will you not be condemned when you stand before the living God? You will stand before the living God. That is an appointment you cannot escape. The question is, will you be prepared for it? 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice the imagery is actually similar. You've taken refuge in him. Here they're actually in Jesus. That You'd almost think Jesus is the refuge. Yes, he is. Go read Psalm 2. If, if you've fled to Jesus for refuge, if you've trusted in him, for salvation, if you are hiding in him and his righteousness to protect you, 
then there is no condemnation. The law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. And jump a little further ahead. Verse 31. I'll close with these wonderful words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, remember in Psalm 34, his face is against the wicked, which is the worst possible news in the world, that God is against you. Here, the positive, God is for you if you are hiding in his son. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No good thing do they lack. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. The point is, if God's going to pronounce you innocent, who is there in the universe to bring a charge against you? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Then here's a quote from next week's psalm. As it is written for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded the sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things. Notice not from all these things. We're in nakedness and danger and sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the salvation that David is trusting in. This is the salvation that God, David is trusting in. These are the truths that David has before his eyes that we should have before our eyes, that we might taste and see, that we might tremble and fear the Lord, that we might follow after him. I'm gonna call the worship team up. Let's close in a word of prayer as we prepare to sing our final song. Lord God, what a glorious truth that you are near the brokenhearted, that you save the crushed in spirit, that you are for us in Christ, that you redeem us, And that there is no condemnation for those who take refuge in you. Lord, it is my earnest prayer, our earnest prayer, that you would cause more men and women to take refuge in your son. That we might confidently, unwaveringly trust in him and fear nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.